Welcome to The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want the truth about having a healthy, happy, strong body. Remember, your body was meant to move. Now here's your host, Stephen Sashen. You want to warm up for a run or a hike or a workout, so you've got to stretch, right? What if that is the worst thing you could possibly do? Well, we're going to find out more about that on today's episode of The Movement Movement Podcast, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body starting feet first, usually, because those things are your foundation. And we're going to be exploring the propaganda, the mythology, sometimes the straight out lies you've been taught about what it takes to run or walk or hike or play or do yoga or CrossFit or work out whatever it is you do and to do it enjoyably, efficiently. And did I mention enjoyably? Because if you're not having fun, do something different so you are. That's one of the important messages. If you want to find out more about what we're up to, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. That's where you'll find previous episodes, all the different ways you can interact with us on Facebook and on YouTube and on Instagram and Twitter and et cetera, et cetera. Because what we're doing here, why it's the movement movement, we're creating a movement that involves you about movement, more specifically natural movement, letting your body do what it's supposed to do. We're helping people rediscover that natural movement is the obvious, better, healthy choice the way that we currently think natural food is. And so you are part of the movement about that natural movement. So go check out the website and like and share and subscribe and give us a thumbs up or hit the bell on YouTube. You know what to do. In other words, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. So let us jump in and find out why stretching is a horrible thing. Kathleen, hello. Do me a favor. Tell human beings who you are and what you're doing here. Hello, I'm Kathleen McDonough. I'm a physical therapist and a Pilates teacher. And I've been in orthopedics and sports PT for three and a half decades, more than I, uh, more, more, more than I look, right? But How could been you have started before you were time. even born, Kathleen? Exactly, exactly. I was a child prodigy. But I've been working with athletes, with ballet dancers, with um, recreational athletes, professional athletes, and just normal schmo injured folks that want to get back to doing what they're doing for a long time. And I, just a little, if you want to hear it, my yeah. intro to minimal running Sure. back in uh, maybe like 2008 or so, I, I've been a recreational runner since I was a teenager, not because I love it, but because I love how it makes me feel. And you don't like running, you like having run. Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. Although, you know, I get to run in a beautiful place and it's all good, but that's another podcast, right? How we get ourselves out there. But I, my knees were always a little bit creaky, and I always switched my shoes at about four months or so, even without running a lot of mileage, because I could feel it in my joints. And then a friend of mine said, we were away on a trip, and she said, you know, I read this article, and do you think we should all do barefoot running? And I thought, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of in my life. I'm going to have like, it'll be good for business. I'll have a lot of injured people, but that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. And then started reading more about it and thought, well, you know, if there's ever a potential client, if there's ever a potential person to try barefoot running successfully, I would be the poster child because I work barefoot. I'm a Pilates teacher. I have strong, flexible feet. I'm pretty aware of how I run, blah, blah, blah. So I made the transition. I was extremely careful. I would start out in my regular old shoes. I hate to call them traditional running shoes because they're not traditional. They were not traditional, but until, you know, the late seventies or so, but I'd wear my regular running shoes with my other shoes tied around my waist partway through. I'd switch my shoes. You know, I was really careful. 
And even with that, I got a bit of Achilles tendonitis on one side and then on the other, dealt with it, no problem. Well, wait, I want to pa- pa- pause there for two reasons. One, I like to say that things like Achilles tendonitis or Achilles or calf pain is totally optional, depending on what you're doing. And, and I always love unilateral injuries. I love when something's wrong on one side, not the other, because the good side is fine. But people rarely yeah. pay attention to the good side. They pay attention to the bad yeah. side. When you said, so you got it in one si- on one side and you dealt with it, what did you do? What did you discover in that process before you continue with the story? Uh, I did what I would do as a PT. I did some friction massage. I did a little bit of stretching. Talk about stretching. <laughs> and, and that was about it. It pretty much took care of it. I already had pretty strong and flexible feet, mm. which is a big deal. And I also did a chi running course and I think changed my running style a bit. And that made a big difference as well. And we can talk more about those kinds of things that I recommend to people a lot. But I found that instead of switching shoes, like, Oh, I'll do this shoe, the two runs a week and I'll do the minimal shoe two runs a week. It was like, I didn't like going back right away. My knees felt way better in a minimal shoe. So I was hooked and did a, a workshop with a chi running instructor instructor and a running shoe store fella locally. And we had, and this is back maybe 2010, something like that. Mm-hmm. We had like standing room only in yeah. the running shoe store. And it was like, if there would have been food served, there would have been a food fight. It was like the people on the one side and the people on yeah. the other side and like, you're crazy. You're going to get stress fractures and Achilles tendonitis and plantar fasciitis. You're crazy. You know, it was really, it was pretty eye opening. Since then, and I've been able to study with the most prominent researchers in running from Harvard, from University of Wisconsin, from USC, from UCSF, brilliant people. There is, there is no controversy about minimal running. Right. It just is. There is so much research about it. This is what I say. What I say, it's like people love to say there's a controversy, but there's a ton of research supporting the benefits of natural movement and zero good research supporting the benefits of big, thick padded motion control shoes. And the few bits that are anti-minimalist, anti-barefoot, if you actually look at the studies, they are not what people think. Um, One example uh, is a study where they they were examining VO2 max, basically how well your body can handle oxygen uh, as you're exercising, and with the idea that the, investigating whether running barefoot improves your VO2 max. Well, no barefoot runner ever said that it did. So, you know, where did this come from? And the other one was that the study included people who were, quote, accomplished barefoot runners, but I know all the accomplished barefoot runners around here. The study was done at University of Colorado. I said, no one that I know, nor I, were involved in that study. So but I know who was in that study. And these are runners who were not accomplished barefoot runners. They're accomplished yeah. runners who do a little bit of barefoot training on the grass. All uh, different game. So, yeah. or my favorite one that I've been talking about lately is Nike has put out a thing saying, hey, here's a study that shows our new shoe reduced injury rates by 50% compared to another shoe. Well, first of all, the other shoe was their shoe. So their best-selling motion control running shoe was the one that caused more injuries than the new shoe. But the the data you, you have, it hasn't even, I haven't even seen it published yet. The only thing I'm seeing is people saying reduces injuries by 50%. But the data, because I got a copy of the study, showed that the people in their best-selling motion control shoe, 30%, over 30%, got injured within the 12-week study, which really means they got injured within about the first 10, 11 weeks because of how they 
determined injury. And in the best-selling, sorry, the new shoe, only 14.5% got injured, which is kind of like saying, do you want to go to a restaurant that will give you food poisoning in one of three meals or one of seven meals? Yeah, exactly. Because it'll allow, you know, so anyway, yeah, it's, you're, you're right. There, there is no real controversy. People love to act like they're. I mean, you know, I come from a land of Dipsy. I don't know if you know about the Dipsy race. It's one of the foot races in the country. And uh, unfortunately it was canceled this year for the first time. The only reason other than World War II, right? And there are a lot of. I have to um, say, I've been to the Dipsy Diner. Ah, there you go. So, and you didn't get food poisoning, hopefully. There you go. So there are a lot of very confirmed runners. There is a local podiatrist who is really big on orthotics and on big supportive shoes. And there are a lot of those runners that wear that. Now, I always tell my clients that we were not born to bear weight in the sole, in the arch of our foot. Right. You know, orthotics and orthotic is first aid. I wore one way back in my 20s because I had a, a stress fracture from doing aerobics on a bad floor. It's first aid, but then you need to get out of that, right? You wouldn't wear a brace or a splint forever. And there are runners that I know that I've treated who are some of the people who have the most mileage on their feet in the world, that their feet, their body is so altered that they may not, I'm not sure if they structurally can ever get out of that. And they're going to keep running. Runners are going to keep running, right? Or if they, some people don't have the commitment to it. They're very entrenched in what they do and they, they do it and that's what they're going to do. So, but I encourage all of my clients to think about transitioning to a more natural running style because it's better for you in so many ways. So it's funny. I'm on the track every week. And I, one of the things that I've noticed is a couple of a number of runners, especially the good runners that I see are forefoot or midfoot landing runners who are still in padded over controlled shoes. But what's interesting is some of these runners, their heels never come close to the ground. Yeah. And so my thought is then why are you wearing that overblown, over-designed shoe? You're running, you're perfect for what we do. Why aren't you doing that? And some of it is because, you know, it's what we get used to. It's what someone's told. They think that this is the intervention when this is what it was, what shoes were made like for, well, up until the early seventies. Do you know, do you know how the padded motion control shoe was developed? You know the story? You know, I think I've heard it, but feel free to riff. So there's two parts to the story. The first part is that when Nike was getting started, they were sharing a building with some, I think, orthopedics podiatrists or maybe sports podiatrists. And Bill Bowerman came and said, I'm getting these runners with Achilles tendonitis. What do I do? And they said, oh, well, their Achilles have shortened from wearing higher heel running shoes. So make, uh, sorry, higher heel dress shoes. So make a higher heel running shoe to accommodate that. Now, mm-hmm. of course, once you make a higher heeled shoe, it's almost impossible not to land on it unless you already have great form. When you land on your heel, it's a ball. So now you're unstable. So then they build in motion control. When you land on your heel, by the time your foot comes down, your foot and your plantar fascia are fully extended in a weak position, which puts strain on the, the arch. So that's when they built in arch support to alleviate the strain. And, uh, and so everything that we know evolved from this idea of, you know, put an elevated heel. Well, not too long ago, a friend of mine was at a track meet with one of these podiatrists and said, what do you think about the fact that your idea has become the ubiquitous design for all modern athletic footwear? And he said, uh, biggest mistake we ever made. Mm. But footwear, yeah. I have come to learn as a bunch of copycats, where if somebody starts to sell something 
everyone else yeah. freaks out that they're never going to sell whatever they do and they make their version of the same thing. And right. so that's yeah. just the way it's evolved in the last 50 years. And there's just, again, there's just no evidence. The evidence, I mean, you mentioned some of the people that you studied with. I mean, one of those, I don't know if one of those people is Christine Pollard, who's done a lot of research showing that the more cushioning you have, the more force you put into the ground, which mm -hmm. sounds upside down to most people. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's just, that's what, how bodies work is like they're trying to. Well, the other thing. Yeah. And the other thing that's very interesting is if you run on a cushioned surface, whether mm -hmm. it's a shoe or, or the grass, uh, or the grass yeah. your joints are going to stiffen in response to that. Right. Right. If you run on a firmer surface, your joints are going to soften and cushion in response to that. Now, right. I don't run on asphalt. I don't run on concrete. I run on trails, but some of the trails are pretty hard. But it, it's one of those counterintuitive things that if you you think you need more cushion, and a lot of people think they need more cushion, it's like, well, let's look at your foot because the foot, you know, the shoe companies have tried to out-engineer the foot, which is right. just hubris, right? We have this incredible structure in our foot with, you know, so many joints and bones, four layers of muscle, over a hundred muscles in the arch of the foot itself. And yet we treat our feet like big dumb flippers. You know, it's really, it's a, it's a triplanar complex that can move in different, three different planes of movement. And if you take some of that away or excessively load in one way or another, which that big lateral heel on a shoe will do, it will make you pronate more, right? It will throw right. more load that way then you're going to be transferring the things that the foot is supposed to be doing that you are taking away up the spine, up the knee, up the hip, right? So the more we've tried to out-engineer the foot, the worse things have gotten. Yeah. One of my friends who was at Nike for 30 years said, I worked with Bowerman for that whole time trying to figure out how to improve what feet do, and we couldn't do it. No, no. Or NASA tries to make a foot for a robot that right. can accommodate different surfaces on a planet. Right. And they can't replicate what the natural foot does. Mm. Right. It's, it's remarkable. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time in anatomy labs and have been lucky to, to volunteer at UCSF's PT department in their anatomy lab. And a lot of the cadavers are older, you know, they're in their eighties. And I think about like, okay, they're in their eighties, but when did they, they live their life? Right. But even in these 80-year-olds, you can see feet that still have, you can still fully dissect out all of those muscles in the arch of the foot. It's pretty remarkable. You think, oh, you know, we're 80. We might be kind of old and shriveled up. And, you know, you can't really, can't really get those things because they're not nice and juicy and, right. and vibrant. But they still are. And I think those 80-year-olds probably weren't wearing those traditional running shoes. They were probably living their life in their kids. Jack Kirk, the Dipsy Demon, who won the Dipsy more than anybody else, right? People would try and give him, he would run him in, I can't remember if it was Keds or just a, you know, just a flat. Like a, a Converse All-Star, yeah. Exactly, or, or like, what's the Converse one that's like, it has a guy's name. Yeah, it was in you my know, head just a, that. Just like a, a, just a lace-up flat shoe. Yeah. And people would try and give him a better shoe. And he was like, no, 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 I got this, you know? And he ran it successfully. You know, he had to be helped a little bit at 91 or something like that. But, you know, the, the foot is an amazing thing. It's an amazing piece of architecture and engineering. Well, and, and what's most amazing is that major companies 
have spent the last 50 years teaching people the opposite so much so that everyone now thinks that it's true that feet are inherently problematic. And there's a yeah. great story someone told me, and he was actually, he's actually a guy who does make orthotics for a living. And I put him in a pair of our shoes in the Prio and uh, he's walking around and he said, what, what do you see? I said, well, technically, I mean, without your orthotics, your right foot is pronating a little more because you have weak ankles because you haven't been using them. But did you notice that? He goes, no. I said, then it doesn't matter, obviously. And he was sort of dumbstruck by it, but he told me this great story that there was a podiatrist who went to Kenya, I think in the 60s, to study the Kenyan army who did a lot of their training barefoot because they couldn't afford shoes. And so mm-hmm. his report was a podiatrist will go broke in this country. And, uh-huh. and you know, there's another thing where Americans are different than Europeans and Asians. So in Europe, there are footwear brands that have been around for 250 years that are more about natural movement than anything that was ever done in America. And they mm-hmm. get this idea. There is no controversy there. It, there's no argument yeah. there. In Asia, same thing. You know, sandals and flip-flops and bare feet are an integral part of the culture in many Asian countries. And so this idea, you know, I'm watching big shoe companies try to convince them that they're wrong and they're good at it. They're good at making that argument because it does, like the idea of cushioning makes quote unquote intuitive sense. You know, you get a mattress, you want it to feel comfortable. You step on memory foam, it feels good at first. That doesn't mean it's good for you. And what we always say to, when we're talking to Asian dealers and distributors, we say, look, you have a, you can't, you go to China, for example, or Hong Kong or Tokyo, and every 20 feet, there's a foot massage place or a reflexology place. And you go, you guys know the value of the foot. Why are you letting these big Western companies try to convince you otherwise? And then they go, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's a really yeah. interesting one. Well, backing up to kind of where you got to, we'll talk about yeah. the problems of stretching in a moment. Talk about the Pilates piece of this puzzle and how that applies yeah. to Because most people think of Pilates as, you know, what Hollywood actresses do who don't have, who, right. if they can't actually yeah, work out. Yeah. So Joseph Pilates was a man, right? And uh, he was a human being and he was born in the late 1800s. And he was, he came from a, um, he was born in Germany, he's a German and his family was sort of involved in the movement in Germany at the time of physical culture. You know, they had a gym and it was, he and his brother were models that would pose as, you know, human Greek statues. And he was a self-taught fan of anatomy and he was somewhat sickly as a child and made fun of for that. And so he started developing a series of exercises. And then he was, interestingly, he was interned at a camp for enemy combatants in England because he was living in England at the time during World War I. And he had a lot of people with not a lot to do that he got to practice on and did his, it was sort of a Jacqueline of his time, to do his exercises with. And then he had bed springs that he could innovate. And instead of using his body for resistance, he could use the bed springs for resistance. Oh, wow. and his claim to fame, well, his, his claim was that during the, the pandemic of 1918, 1919, that nobody got sick in his camp and that it was because they, they did his series of exercises. Whether or not that's true, I don't know, but, but yeah. it's a good story. And a lot of what... Well, no, the, it's because they were all in his gym and they never dealt with anybody else who actually got sick. So it was the... Exactly. Yes, it was inadvertent social distancing. Exactly. We were on an island. So, but the, he developed this, this uh, series of exercises that he called Contrology and said that if you had a sound mind, 
housed within a sound body, and you could your 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 body would do what your brain told it to do, that you would be at peace with yourself, and you would feel good spiritually. And if I did that, that would be good. And if you did that, that'd be good. And if the whole world did that, we would have world peace. That was his vision. You know, he was he was a small minded thinker, right? That was it was a big vision of world peace through feeling good in your body, right? Which is remarkable. And, you know, clearly he had studied some Eastern movement philosophies as well, but that was kind of where it came from. And one of the things that he knew way back when, I mean, most of what he wrote his book, Return to Life in 19, I should know this, 35, 41, something back in there. And there are things that he purports in that. It's a little book, it's cheap. It has all the, the map exercises in it without any modifications. So it's, it's a, not a, an easy pick up and go through them and do them all. But in the introduction, one of the things he really talks about is health, whole body health. And he really believed that we were not meant to statically stretch, that we that dynamic stretching was really what it's all about. And now we know through modern science, it's caught up to what he knew intuitively watching the way the body moved. He part of how he developed his method was studying the way animals moved in the wild. And so, if you think about how a natural human animal would move, we would not wear shoes. We might wear something to keep our feet warm if we were in the snow or something like that. But we wouldn't wear an arch support, a padded heel, all that kind of stuff, right? And we would be climbing trees, and we would be walking on unstable surfaces and walking over logs and doing all kinds of things that a natural human body would do. We don't do that stuff these days, right? So he developed a number of, uh, he was a crazy inventor, and a lot of people are familiar with like the Pilates Reformer or some of the other pieces of apparatus, but there are many smaller pieces of apparatus that he developed like the foot corrector and the toe corrector. And the chair, the uh, one to chair, which everybody could have at home and flip it over and it becomes a piece of exercise equipment that you can do dynamic stretching as well. It's a strengthening, it's a whole body exercise, but it is dynamic stretching is built into that. So can you explain for lay humans, if you will, what the difference is between static stretching and dynamic stretching? And even more, we, what I often start these podcasts with and we didn't do it is something that people can experience as well. So any sort of movement thing so they can get a flavor. So do the yep. kind of distinction between them. And then if you can give somebody something so they can feel that distinction, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So static stretching, we think of as, you know, you put your foot up on something and you hang out there and you stretch it. You feel a stretch in your hamstrings and you hang out there for a minute to two minutes and you wait for this elastic deformation of tissues to happen, right? That you're going to actually deform and lengthen the tissues. You're going to overcome the stretch reflex and, and you're going to end up with a longer piece of meat and, and its connection to, to the bones. Right? I think, I think that's a good, that's, I don't know if that's a better book title or band title, longer piece of meat. <laughs> I don't think we should go there. That's, that's a different podcast. Well, right? No, I, I was not thinking that when I said that, but then as soon as it came <laughs> out of my mouth, I went, ah, oh, this is not good, but it was too late. To so anyway, all right. So that's static stretching. And you know, look, I'm having flashbacks to my gymnast days when I was in high school where I would just spend the entire evening watching TV, working on the splits. Yeah. Or I remember when I was working at St. Mary's Spine Center back in the eighties and nineties, then I would have, I might have you know, 25% of my clientele might be guys in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 
that came in with back pain with very tight hamstrings. And so I would show them how to stretch their hamstrings by lying on the floor and putting one leg up on the door jam right. Right, with your tailbone down and hanging out there. Right. I would do it with them. So I was stretching my hamstrings four or five times a day. Do you think my hamstrings ever got any, any longer? Never, never. I think, well, yeah, I can stretch and then I go run or work out or something and they tighten back up again. So I will say that I do, for my clients that come in that are kind of pathologically tight, I might include a static stretch, but I always include a dynamic stretch. So the difference being that a dynamic stretch, we're not just trying to passively lay the leg up there and get it to lengthen. We are inviting it to, we are inviting the hamstrings to lengthen by activating the antagonist. So by using the muscles on the other side, you are going to reflexively inhibit the muscles that you're trying to stretch. So, and you could think of if you're trying to lengthen your hamstrings, which are hip extensors and knee flexors, you're going to use knee extensors and hip flexors, right? So, and there are lots of great ways to do that. So, for example, I will have, I teach, there's a Pilates exercise called side kicks. So you lie on your side, you pick up the top leg and you're going to swing it to the front and then swing it to the back. And you're stabilizing your trunk so that you're, you're you know, from your hips to your head really by co-contraction of the core, transverse abdominus, multifidus, pelvic floor, lots of other stuff thrown in there but you're allowing the leg to swing to the front and then swing to the back, actively pulling it to the front and then actively pulling it to the back, right? Mm-hmm. That's great. But if you're going out for a run, how do you do that? Unless you <laughs> it home and then you get in your car and you drive and go to whatever and, and maybe you've tightened up by then, right? So you can stand on a step if you've got it or on a curb and hang on to maybe the stop sign for balance Get yourself nice and tall, zip your belly muscles up a bit, and swing your leg to the front, and then swing your leg to the back, right? So you are actively doing a dynamic stretch for hamstrings and also for hip flexors, Mm. which, by the way, can be a big problem. Tight hip flexors, most of us have because we sit too dang much. And if you are trying to run and run with a more natural style and you have tight hip flexors, it's a big problem. There's a, an example of a dynamic stretch that you can do before and a little bit after your run when you're warmed well, up and you be more you, likely. You remind me of two things. Back to again, thinking of when I was sitting on the ground or you know trying to stretch into the splits. The other thing that I was working on a lot is an, an important move for gymnastics. Is well, there's different ways of thinking about it, but imagine you're sitting on the ground straddled, and then you put your hands between your legs and you just lift yourself yeah. up off the ground. So you need to have the flexibility for doing that, but you also have to have the strength. Your quads are pulling your legs up to do that. So I used to do that too. I'd be sitting in that position and just lift up. And of course, like you said, by strengthening the quads, it allowed the hamstrings to relax and quote unquote stretch from doing that. There's, there are a number of, there are a couple of bodybuilders that I know of who are super, super flexible because they're super strong and they've gotten good at relaxing the, the other muscles. So bodybuilders who do the splits who do all these things and so there and there are a couple of people there's a another zero hero friend of ours he calls himself juji mufu it's john call and john is famous for being on america's got talent and doing the splits between two chairs while holding heidi over his head (laughs) and and john and a couple of other people who when they try to teach you about how to do the splits 
part of what they're teaching, they're teaching is strength for the quads and the, and the hip flexors mm-hmm. so that you actually can pull your legs into that position, which is another yeah. variation on a theme. I've never, it's, it's interesting because, because I was flexible doing leg swings like that never really did anything to me because I can, you know, get my leg way up and way back. But for many people, you know, that they, that's a big deal to learn to relax things in one direction and then relax the other things in the opposite direction. And yeah. Right. And for those people that are really flexible, so gymnasts, figure skaters, dancers, Dancers, their issue is not flexibility. Their issue is often stability. Right. So you not over compress your joints and how can you find the stability in maybe your trunk Mm. be able to then move the move within your flexibility and not abuse the flexibility that you've got so other you know when we think about stretching we think about flexibility it's so perfect that you picked hamstring because that's sort of like the yardstick for flexibility according to most people what other places or what other ways do you see that people may need to work on some kind of flexibility and have some dynamic experience of that, whether they're runners or office monkeys? Yeah. So one big problem that I see also besides us sitting and having tight hip flexors is being limited in dorsiflexion and ankle dorsiflexion. So the ability... Yeah. Tell people what that is. Yeah. Yeah. So, and actually, hang on, I'm going to grab my bony friend. Oh, wait, you're going to grab your bony foot. I'm going to, I'll see you and grab my bony foot. I see. I, I'm waiting for your bony foot. Here's for people who aren't watching. I have a skeletal model of a foot here. Oh, you got a whole skeleton model. Oh man, I just got a foot. Not as flexible as your foot. So oh, you got the you got the the real deal. By the way, wait, hold on. I've got to tell you this. My dad was a dentist, and when he was in dental school back in the whenever that was in the fifties, I don't know how it was, but he had a a human skull that they had made little joint um, little windows so you could see the sinuses you could see this i mean for whatever reason he, had, he got this in dental school that was my show and tell object until i was like 12 yeah. bringing in a human yeah. skull when we run yeah when we walk or run this down there you need go. to be able to move the shin bones forward over the talus right yep and so this has to happen and yep. that my I'm kind of a joint head, you know, when it comes to like what's going on, I kind of defer to the joints first. And that's just me. It's not like it's better or anything. So I always look to see how much range of motion and you should be able to get with the ankle in subtalar neutral. So I can feel and position that ankle neutral. You should be able to get on the other side of 90 degrees, right? So for people who aren't for people who aren't watching, let's, I'm going to give, try and give them a, an image in their mind, and you tell me if you want to correct it. So if you're, let's say you're sitting on the ground, for example, your feet are flat on the ground, and you yeah. make sure that your shin bones are basically vertical. At the very least, you should be able to lift your foot so that you're keeping your heel on the ground. Lift your toes towards your knees some amount. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Or that if you were in a roller chair. If you're on a stool with, with wheels and you're, you start out in that position you just described, you should be able to roll forward and your shin bones can move forward over your ankle, right? Yep. That's required for running. That's required for walking. If you don't have that, then you are going to do a couple of things. You'll toe out and pronate over your arch mm. or you're, you'll pick up your foot too soon. Those are two typical things. So And none of those are good for your running style, right? Or for walking for that matter. So 
the length of the calf and the Achilles. So that whole gastroc, soleus, plantaris, Achilles into the arch of the foot, plantar fascia, all the way through great toe extension. You need all of that to be able to run with decent form, right? With good movement and good use of your foot and your leg all the way up. So I want to address, address a point that you made that relates to this. You were saying, you know, your story that luckily for you, you already had strong, flexible feet. There've been a couple of articles that came out lately suggesting that strong, flexible feet was a prerequisite for natural movement, natural running, barefoot running. And this was something that actually happened around 2010 as well, as people were trying to, I think, establish themselves as experts in the field of natural movement. They were saying, you know, here's the things you need to be able to do in order to accomplish this thing of running barefoot. Most of those things I couldn't do for whatever reason, some of which I have a compromised spine, some of which, you know, whatever. So I'm always iffy, but even with the new article saying, you know, people who are in this situation are better equipped to make the transition. But what they leave out is the phenomenon that just making the transition intelligently, you build, you can build that strength and that flexibility naturally. So the idea that it's a prerequisite is one that I think, again, a lot of hand waving, a lot of people who who think that, well, let's say there's some people who are totally against this whole idea. And there's some people who want to find an, a middle ground. And they're, it's kind of like in 2011 or so, when a number of companies came out with what they referred to as transition shoes that were just mm-hmm. a little lower heel yeah. rise. And, there, yeah. and it was all marketing. There was no evidence that that worked. In fact, Irene Davis at Harvard, her research shows that those transition shoes are the worst things you could possibly wear. And so can we talk about just the phenomenon of that amount of movement, the strength and flexibility that you do need in the foot and ankle and the development of it, not necessarily as a prerequisite, but certainly let's say as a, I'm kind of going hand in hand, you know, like a push me, pull you a little. Yeah. um, Yeah. I think that I think of it a bit more as a prerequisite, but probably because of the clientele that I see, but you know, you just have to think, all right, what's going to make the safest experience for you? What's going to be least likely to give you any trouble? And I'm going to interrupt really quick. I mean, Irene Davis would would agree with you, I think more than I, which is that she thinks, you know, walking and strengthening is the prerequisite. And I would say, if you just start small enough, same thing, no amount of strengthening that you're going to do that's going to replicate what happens when you try. I see people have plantar fasciitis that can't walk in their own house barefoot, right? So it's like, Uh okay, that's a problem, right? Yeah. So that's kind of the far end of the spectrum. I love Irene Davis. I love Irene Davis. Irene, I love you. I've been at a couple of conferences that she's spoken at, and I brought a couple of Joe's inventions with me. So the foot corrector. I was going to ask you about that. Oh, wait, hold that up. I want to, uh, let me see that thing. The foot corrector. So what the hell? I can show you how it works, but this is this is dynamic stretching and strengthening all in one package. And sometimes they look flat. This one is elevated, and I like that one better. And then the toe gizmo. So (laughs) toe gizmo, inventive guy. Yeah. And I so during one of the breaks, I went up and I said to Irene, "Hey, Irene, I love the stuff." And you know, she's all about the foot. Right. Chris Powers, USC, is all about the hip. Right. 
Brian Heiderscheidt at Wisconsin is like, it doesn't matter, just change the cadence and everything will get better, right? Well, Brian, Brian will argue that that's not what he says. I will argue back. <laughs> that's exactly what you say. I adore Brian. It's and, well, he's probably right. I mean, if you do pick up, I mean, and there, this is interesting because he's like for, for Brian, if you do pick up your cadence, that's usually going to lead to a number of corrections pretty naturally, yes. but not entirely. Exactly. And then for Chris, yeah, if you know, if you lean a little more, that will make a little bit. But Irene, I mean, she just dives in deep and has. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I went up during one of the breaks, and I was like, Irene, have you have you ever have you ever seen Joe's? You know. So and then Brian's like, What's that? It's so I feel like have them take off their shoes. Come on, let's try it. And they're like, That's really cool. I've never seen that before. So right. some other things that can be done. Do you want to see how they work? Yeah. I'll move the bogey friend. And, and again, we're, uh, we're going to describe this for people who are listening and not watching. So the toe gizmo, you got to hold that up again so I can de- try to describe that to people who aren't. Okay. So we've got, um, oh man, how am I going to describe this? So we have two loops that look like they're leather or something that are connected with a spring. And then there's some other kind of, I'm not going to do it enough. Let's just say it's two loops that are connected with a spring. Yeah. Okay. And I will tell you that my home version of this game <laughs> is this. A rubber band. Oh, you got to be kidding. Exactly. Right? Okay. I usually use, I don't have a broccoli band, but I usually use a broccoli band. Yeah, so you can fake this with a okay. broccoli band. All right. So let's a big, see. big rubber band. So the Pilates toe gizmo version is a high-tech version of a rubber band. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to try and point this so that you can see my feet. I would not be doing this lying down. Okay. Just so you can see me. All right. So we're going to loop the loops around your big toes. You got a spring between your big toes. You see that okay? Yeah, I can. All right. So I would be on the floor probably. Yep. And I'm going to try and contact, I think about the four points of the feet. Some people who have more yoga background think about three points, but the the base of the big toe, the base of the pinky toe, and the inner and the outer heel. And I'm going to have equal contact reaching down into the ground with those points. And then I'm going to lift, dynamically lift my arch. So I'm going to dome the foot, another one of my favorite exercises. Okay, right? so, wait, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to break this down. So for most people, and again, if you're doing this with a rubber band, go get a rubber band. Try this if you have one. And so you'd be doing this standing. You want to, be, again, balanced along your feet so you're feeling equal weight on underneath the ball of your big foot, uh, big toe, little toe, and both sides of your heel. And then this doming thing, it's really like an isometric thing where you're almost like trying to squeeze and shorten the distance between the ball of your big toe and your heel. So you're pulling up but you're not, you know, you want to do it without squeezing your toes. So you're just trying to, you're trying to just create more arch by just squeezing. Now, by the way, if you're standing, I I don't know if you do this, but I'm going to toss this out there. One thing that can often help for a lot of people is tighten your glutes, is engage your glutes. Because if your glutes, because if you do that, that tries to make your, that tries to make your whole leg turn out a tiny bit because your glutes do that. And if your feet are planted, they won't turn, but that'll also kind of create a little bit of an arch. Yeah. So can I add to that? Because yes. sometimes we tell people to squeeze their glutes and PTs say this kind of thing all the time. Squeeze your glutes, squeeze your glutes. Yeah, yeah. That does not mean squeezing your butt cheeks together and right. clenching, right? It is activating your femurs to wrap exactly. into the back of the socket, right? So that, and that, when you lift the arch of the foot, Mm-hmm. And that line continues up through the legs. The femurs will externally rotate a bit. Right. 
and your your inner thighs will turn on. Your adductor longus is going to work a little bit to help do that, which it almost functions like a hamstring, right, uh, in hip extension. Your pelvic floor is going to turn on. Your transverse abdominis is going to lift. You're going to activate from the feet up the Everything. whole way you get to decompress your whole body and be taller and lighter on your feet, right? Yeah. So, yeah, and, and sometimes this is hard for people to do standing, so they can do it sitting too. Okay, okay, so... That was a bit of a detour from you've got the rubber band around your feet, your feet are well planted, you're doming, you're trying to you know, create that arch, all right, and now? I try and think about doming as coming also from the pinky side, so big toe and pinky side, trying to shorten towards the heel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we have a lateral longitudinal arch as well as a medial arch. It's, it's lower and it's shorter, but it's there as well, right? Yeah. If we wanted to really split hairs, we could also talk about the transverse arch and trying to lift that yeah. So, so now I'm going to kick all 10 toes up and I'm going to try and spread that spring apart. And this guy does not move a whole heck of a lot. It's right. a pretty firm one. There are other ones that are a little bit more, the spring is not as tight. I know some people that don't like this device because it abducts the, the big toe a bit, right? So if you have a bunion, is that going to increase the bunion? And I would say, no, you're trying to activate all the muscles around there and spread all of the toes out. So some of the intrinsic muscles in the feet spread out the metatarsals and some of them pull the metatarsals together, right? So we are trying to find all the muscles that can spread my foot instead of my foot being squished into a narrow shoe, right? So and take it and loop that rubber band around the second toe and the big toe. Mm. Spread it out, right? And with the third toe and the big toe. So it's just playing with your feet, right? It's just it. getting your our feet can actually do everything that our hand can do except opposition. So we can dome the foot. We can, you know, we think about all the things we can do with our hand. We can do those things with our feet. We just don't do it, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to someone who runs USA Archery, the Olympic archery team, and she was talking about the Paralympic team and that there's a couple of archers on the team who are actually maybe just one who has no arms and so holds yeah. the bow with his foot and can, and I think he actually might hold the string, might pull it a bit with his foot or, or he might pull it in his teeth. I don't remember. Wow. But either way, I've seen, well, anyone who's watched America's Got Talent has seen, seen a contortionist take a bow and arrow and shoot with their feet. So, you know, there's yeah. all these things we can do. I've seen people yeah. do piano with their feet and everyone always views that and they go, it's amazing that they do that. It's like, no, 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 you could do that too. They just have. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So do you want me to show you the foot corrector? Yeah. The okay. foot corrector. Uh, we need this to... we definitely do in standing. Okay. And so I'm going to stand on a table. I'm going to get a pull so I don't make a fool of myself and fall down while I'm <laughs> So the foot corrector, for those of you who are not watching, basically a piece of, there's like a piece of wood that's kind of foot shaped ish. And then there are two, there's like, imagine near the outside of your, the inside of your foot and the outside of your foot, there are two posts coming up with springs on them. And then in between them is a curved piece of metal. So, all right, I'm seeing where this is going. So you can put, and so it's like maybe, you know, the posts are maybe three inches high. So if you put your heel on the piece of wood on the back, 
your the ball of your foot, your toes go over that curved piece of metal, and you can squeeze it down with the spring. So you're pushing this that curved piece down. I'm doing a horrible job. Just go watch the damn video. So yeah. Ethel, do, you, do you want to say more about it or what you're doing? The, the thing on top, actually, the the holes are elongated. They're not round. So I can actually. I'm not just pushing on it. It's not an accelerator pedal, right? Okay. I'm curling my toes around this saddle thing. I'm compressing it, and I'm trying to pull it towards my heel. Oh, uh, okay. Let it go and stretch out. Here's a dynamic stretch, right? Then I'm going to curl around and pull it. And we do this in a couple different positions. Now I'm more on the arch of my foot and trying to do it with more of my arch mm-hmm. broke my toe about three weeks ago and I haven't been doing this and it's like, wow, I should do this. I can feel <laughs> You know, barber child. And then we can put it the other way and I put the ball of my foot on the surface and I, my heel is up on the saddle now. And I, again, I'm not stopping down with my leg power. I'm trying to pull the heel oh, it. the ball of the foot and shorten the arch of my foot, lengthening my Achilles as I do this, right? No. Not much of a leg, but certainly using some muscles to pull through the arch to lengthen that Achilles. Now, it doesn't stop in the foot. It goes clear up. I'm organized in my other leg, my standing leg, and zipped up and leaned into the wind a little bit so that I can feel that this is a whole body experience, right? Got it. That's that. Very cool. Do you know about the, the research that Sarah Ridge did about foot strengthening and walking in minimalist footwear? Not, not off the top of my head. So the research was taking people who had a, an exercise, foot exercise program, one that Irene developed actually, and then comparing those to people who just walked in minimalist shoes. And what mm-hmm. the study showed is that people who just walked in minimalist shoes got the same benefits, same strengthening as if they did an exercise program. I asked her, she was on the podcast and, and, and I asked her, but I can't remember what devices they use to measure foot strength. And they had come up with some very clever things that uh, you'll have to reach out to her and find out because they were super interesting, not quite like those, which these are even more interesting because they're very specifically about really working that arch. And, and I don't remember how much overlap that would be with Sarah's, but you, I think you'll get a, take a, you'll take a look, you'll get a kick out of it. I know Irene has talked about teaching short foot exercise for sure. Correct. But there's more to it because they, because they had to actually measure foot strength. I mean, what they did is they did ultrasound to measure the circum, the, yeah, uh, the diameter of intrinsic foot muscles, yeah. but they also actually had a foot strengthening, a number of yep. foot strengthening devices that they had developed. Yep. Yeah. That- I just have to put in a plug for physical therapists that do manual therapy because um, you can, that population that they probably studied was probably a well population. They were probably students that were younger and didn't have pathologies, right? Or have yeah. injuries. So sometimes we need a little help. If you have a, tight dorsiflexion and you're trying to stretch and trying to stretch, but really the tightness is in that joint. Mm. You need a manual therapist to get in there and mobilize it. So our right. body has physiologic movement that can produce, but it also has accessory movement, little glides that happen at biomechanically at the joint level right. that we cannot do with volition, right? So you sometimes need somebody to get in there. Yeah, yeah. This is what going to have really ugly hands when I'm an old lady, get in there and work the joint a little bit 
And then I have people actively move after doing that. Well, you're moving the joint. I will never forget the day that I met our friend, Dr. James Stockson, who calls himself the barefoot doctor sometimes. And he's working on my foot and he mobilizes this joint in that first ray, that big toe area, and popped that joint. Like, you know, when you crack your knuckles in your hand and I thought he broke my damn foot. I didn't know there was a joint there. I'd never seen, you know, an actual skeletal model of a foot. Scared the crap out of me. Now it's something I do on a regular basis. But every now and then, especially as a sprinter, I can just tell something is out of whack with all of those bones and joints in my foot. And there's one person I go to and go, can you just like pop all of those and get those back in place? And it's like, oh my God, that's so dreamy. And most people don't know to do that. Yeah. I used to, before I switched to minimal shoes, I used to feel like I wanted somebody to grab my foot and pop it yeah. that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I taught kids, like, can you pull up my feet? Right. They always felt, I always felt really stiff after I ran. And then I switched my shoes and changed my running style. I, no I never have I never have that. Anymore. Yeah, so. I, don't, I, mean, I get it. I don't get it very often, but the thing... The thing with sprinting in particular, I mean, it's just a lot of force. Yeah. And just every now and then, you know, you put your foot in a weird position or you do something and just things get a little out of whack. And yeah, that the exact feeling, it's like, can you just like grab it, just give a yank on my yeah. foot and just like, oh God, so yeah. nice. I think my wife only loves me because I can crack her back. <laughs> that, and, that and the hair, she likes the hair. But I think that's it. I think those are the only two things. Oh, and I can cook. Those three things. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. We have, so anyway, so when people, if you were going to give people, boy, where to even begin on this question? I'm just trying to think of like the people who come to you, why they come to you, how they've discovered that you are a person to go to. And for people who can't necessarily come to see you, uh, you know, there's not a lot of people who have eyes to see is one way of putting it. People will go to a physical therapist who doesn't understand natural movement, who doesn't understand much of what we're talking about. So, you know, what is it that gets people to come to you? And if they can't come to you, what would you recommend someone do if they're trying to find someone to work with or something to do, whether it's a program you've developed or, you know, if they need to find someone locally, et cetera? That's a great question. I think that, that why people come to see me is my background in Pilates, a much more whole body approach. And I got to say that the early part of my career when I did some Pilates, but I hadn't really committed to learning the method and doing a comprehensive teacher training program from soup to nuts, which I did at age 50. And if, and you have to perform all of the exercises like Cirque du Soleil land stuff. So going from being stiffer to having to do all that was a very eye-opening experience and body opening experience for sure. But it changed my attitude from seeing what people couldn't do as a physical therapist and thinking about, oh, that's unsafe. Oh, that's dangerous. Oh, you shouldn't do that. Oh, we have to Take that out of your routine for a while, which there's value in that, but it it shifted my perspective to the potential of the human body and what it could do. Mm. I think that putting those things together is a really good thing to look for in a physical therapist, really any movement, any any sort of body practitioner. How do you how do you look at the the body as a whole a whole structure? And how does it work together? It's not, it's not just a part here and a part there. And, oh, you've got knee pain, so we're going to tape your knee or we're going to treat your knee. It's like, why do you have knee pain? You probably yeah. have something on your hip or your foot or your core strength. So I would look for somebody that has – I'm a big fan of the Pilates method. And so I would say that 
Or the other thing is if you are just interested in, and you're not having pain that would necessitate seeing a medical professional, you know, see a movement practitioner like a Pilates teacher who is comprehensively trained in all these, not just the, I was certified to mat and I was, I uh, do the, but all, all the whole thing yeah. and, and get some good work on your feet. If you're curious about what that could do for your running for how you feel at the end of the day, whatever, you know, dive deep and go to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. That's been through a comprehensive teacher training program and is nationally certified. Well, you know, look, let's do the simplest thing. Most people who either know of Pilates or certainly do Pilates and teach Pilates, most people who know of it don't think of it in the same breath as physical therapy. They don't yeah. think of the, the, that. And most of the Pilates people that I've known that I've known over the years and in Boulder, I think they all are. My line about Boulder is you can't throw a tantrum without hitting a therapist. And that <laughs> both physical and one, Yeah. yeah. But I mean, most of Pilates people I know, they kind of stop at your ankles. They don't really pay attention to feet. And most physical therapists that I know, same thing. They, they won't stop at your feet, but when they get to your feet, they want to immobilize them. So, you know, these are things to, to ask, like, what do you do for mobilizing and strengthening your feet? How do you view the foot as the foundation? And what do you do with that? What are the questions do you think, you know, somebody might want to ask to try to suss out whether they're finding a practitioner who could be useful? Boy, I don't know if I can answer that. Yeah, ponder, but it just popped into my head. I, I knew it might um, be a bumper. Yeah, I think if you, you know, if you, there's so much information you can get about a person and well, really, just. Well, here's one. Here's one for the fun of it. Or I'm not sure what the question is, but I'm going to go back to the very first thing you said when you went to that, that she running thing at the running shoe store. I was at an event at a physical therapy office in the early days, 2000. It was after we started the company. So 2009, 2010, where. Same thing. I mean, there were some people who were like, you've got to wear big, thick padded shoes and the other people who were the exact opposite. And there was one physical therapist who said, it could take you years until you develop the strength to be able to run barefoot. Finally, it hit me and I asked the panel, I was not on the panel, how many of you have ever run fully barefoot for at least a mile on a road, on concrete or a road? And the only person in the room who raised their hand was me. And I was a sprinter. I mean, I don't like doing that. I mean, I did when I went barefoot, but not my natural habitat, if you will. And I said, yeah. you know, you guys are all just talking out of your butt. You're, you're all just making up theories based on your existing repertoire of information, but you don't right. have any experience to back this up. And I can tell you, those of you saying it's going to take two years, complete lie. You're completely full of it. And those of you who are saying you need why these why things. Why tell people that? You know, why um, tell I, I can tell you why. Because they were A, afraid that again, everyone was going to leave because look, the early days of the barefoot running movement, it was promoted as a panacea and a cure for all things. And so they were terrified that everyone was just going to leave. Like imagine if everybody, this is going to sound funny. So back in the late 1800s, a coke addicted doctor in Vienna came up with the idea that uh, you have problems because of things that happened to you as a, as a child, AKA Sigmund Freud. Now, that was an interesting theory. There was no evidence behind it. There's still no evidence behind it because you can have two people who grew up in the exact same environment who have a completely different psychological experience. So imagine if everyone lost the ability to believe the idea that their current things they were dealing with were A, problems caused by something that happened to them as a child. If that happened, suddenly there would be a large number of therapists who'd be out of a job. Same thing. If we learn, teach people how to build foot and ankle strength, and learn to have a strong foundation. Or as Irene Davis says, 
if we got kids just wearing minimalist footwear in 20 years, we wouldn't have to treat them for the problems that now adults spend billions of dollars dealing with. So I saw a lot of people who were terrified they were going to lose their income. And they were trying to come up with a way of transitioning so they were still useful during this process, despite the fact that they weren't useful during this process. That's the way it looked. So the point being is, you know, like another question may be, what kind of barefoot or training do you do? Do you do? What kind of shoes are you wearing? I mean, boy, that's one. There's a physical therapy office right across the street from where I work and I, where I work from my company. And, uh, and when I had my shoulder surgery a couple of years ago, I went to them. They know what I do. They were interested in what I do. They were all wearing big, big padded motion control shoes. And so I wouldn't touch them with a 10 foot pole for anything other than, Hey, I got to work on my post-surgical shoulder stuff. And it was fascinating. They agreed with me about everything. And to this day, three years later, have not walked the hundred yards to come over and try on a pair of shoes. Yeah. And so that's that's, another one. Like it's the barber's child thing. Like if you're, if you're in a town and there's two barbers and one has a crappy haircut and the other has a great haircut, you go to the one with the crappy haircut because he did the other guy. So that might be another one. It's like, you know, what shoes are they wearing? What do they do? I'm not saying anyone has to be a runner. That's not an issue. You know, there's a lot of people who know a lot about running who don't run, but Mm -hmm. see what they're actually doing and try and maybe, you know, someone else will come up with better questions or some other question that they found that works for them. Like what's on the website for like uh, links on their website, right? Oh yeah. Like, you know, there are other movement practices that I will refer to. I, I use Franklin balls. Eric Franklin has a method, right? That and it has these balls that you can, I do a lot of, right. uh, he was a dancer and was tired of being hurt all the time. And so right. he developed a method of moving that's very interesting. And I won't go into it because I'm not at all an expert or have worked very much with him, but these balls that are, they're hmm. fairly soft. I cannot tell you I wish I had a nickel for every time somebody comes in and told me they roll out their fascia with a a lacrosse ball. It's like, that's just torture and it doesn't really do you any good anyway. But these things are kind of soft and they're cratered. And so you can roll the foot and do some of those kind of foot correctory things with the Franklin ball. So does somebody have that as a referral on their website or the melt method, you know, the, which uses a lot of different points of the foot with, with softer balls to try and ac- uh, access fascial lengthening. I think that the more restricted we are in what we do, the lousier we are at it. If we can open our minds and our thoughts, I had to really turn some things off. I think that some people probably in that room, when you asked how many have you have run barefoot from a, you know, they're just afraid of hurting, either right. hurting other people or, right. or hurting yeah, themselves. Yeah. And I remember I was at a conference years ago and the kind of the father of modern exercise physiology, who I had his textbook when I was an exercise phys major at Davis in the PE department years and years ago, he said he he had a hard time getting cardiologists telling people to walk and they were afraid they were going to have a heart attack. And he said, look, if you're afraid of writing down that you need to exercise on a prescription pad then all you need to write is three letters, D-O-G. If you give them a person <laughs> a dog, right? Everybody knows a dog has to walk. Everybody right. knows a dog right. has to exercise. So, you know, if that helps you clear your mind that you're going to hurt them because they're going to go out and start running and have a heart attack, then just tell them to get a dog. Easy. That's hysterical. Right? There have been a lot of uh, dog adoptions during COVID because it gives people an excuse to go outside and walk. Exactly. Yeah. So, that you know, is- I think that, 
you know, those of us that have a little bit more open perspective about trying different things and experiencing different things in your body and, and seeing what works and, um, that that's a good start. We, we are, I mean, by the way, there are a number of people, Ray McClanahan is one, and there are a couple others, We're, Emily Splickle is one. We're trying to put together kind of a directory of yeah. uh, natural movement friendly medical practitioners. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's a tricky one for a list of reasons, uh, obviously, but one is that like some national chiropractic organization is sponsored by a company that makes orthotics. The American mm-hmm. College of Sports Medicine is sponsored by Adidas. You know, it's there. It's a long road to hoe. What I'm hoping is that, given the phenomenon of social media and how quickly information is moving now, that we can shortcut that process. I mean, my goal is that we change the world in the next seven years, and if it takes us ten, so be it. But it's doable. And I mean, we've had CEOs and C-level people at major footwear brands say directly to friends of ours. This whole natural movement thing is legit. We just can't do it because it would be admitting that everything else we've done is bullshit. Yeah, you won't have to replace your shoes every four months. Right. Well, you know, actually backing up to Brian Heiderscheidt, Brian was one of the people who did the research on how quickly shoes wear out when they have cushioning in them and found that they wear out way faster than what the shoe companies say. And, oh, yeah. Um, Even on the shelf, the, you know, yeah. the blown EVA stuff on the shelf loses, I forget what. And this is old research that I oh, did. Yeah. But even if you don't wear them, they oh, yeah. they lose shock absorption. So you know it's it's uh, yeah I agree with you. It's we have to look look to what is more natural. And you know way back when I was uh, in PT school at Stanford, there was which is now this this little phrase is making a resurgence. You know the more high tech we get, the more high touch we have to be as well. And I think that that it's certainly true now. The the more we are, I, I got to tell you, I am heartbroken at. I mean, COVID is just. COVID is the whole ball of badness, but kids being at home mm. and doing all their homework, sometimes four hours in a row with a five minute break on an iPad with crappy ergonomics makes me just want to cry, right? But the more we tie ourselves into screens and a, a less natural way of living our human body, human animal lives, yeah. the more we need to then get out and move our body and yeah. breathe fully and move all of our joints and all the things that those body parts can do. It's so tricky. I've had this conversation slash argument with a bunch of people. It first happened like 10, almost 10 years ago at the first paleo conference, the paleo FX conference, mm-hmm. where I was on a panel about natural movement. And there was a bunch of people whom I really adore, Erwin LaCour and a number of other people talking about getting out and, and doing things that are more natural. So you don't need to go to a gym. You can go outside, you can climb a tree, you can whatever. And I said, you know, look, this is all well and good, but we can't replicate what we did when we were evolving. When, you know, we can't replicate what it's like to chase down something for food or to run away from something that thinks we're food or to go down to the river to get rocks for days and days and weeks and weeks to build, you know, have enough to, you can build a structure. There's just no way to fake it. I said, you know, one example, again, as a competitive sprinter, when I train, I can train really, really hard. I will train really hard this weekend. You know, it might be a little sore the next day, a little bit, no big deal. But if I was in a race this weekend where I'm doing even less because I'm not warming up as long, I'm not doing as, you know, I'm, it's only if I'm doing hundred meters, you know, like less than 13 seconds worth of all out running one time and I'm shot for four days. It's a whole yeah. different hormonal thing. It's a whole different everything. And we can't fake that. 
So we're trying to do the best we can under these extenuating circumstances. And there's another piece that's related to it. I, I think Erwin and I had this conversation. Like, I think it should be required that to graduate high school, you need to be able to do a cartwheel or a handspring or something that, you know, where you get, where you're familiar with what upside down feels like or what hanging feels like or what jumping feels like. Something where, you know, where you need to demonstrate just, you don't have to master anything, but you need to demonstrate a proficiency with certain kind of movements that most people just don't get these days. And, and I mean, thinking about kids being cooped up inside and home learning, I mean, if you haven't been hit in the face with a rubber ball during a game of whatever the hell game you might play by doing that, you know, you haven't lived. <laughs> and, and, and I don't even think they have rubber. I don't even think they play with those big rubber balls anymore because someone got hit in the face one day. It's like, come on, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, sadly, you know, cartwheels and handsprings are like so far down the, so far up the movement pyramid. We, we need to start with like breathing, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Well, wait, hold on. Wait. All right. Since you brought that up, I'm going to hit you with my, the one observation I made when I first got turned on to Pilates, which was 40 years ago. And that is, there was two things that were really interesting. So Joe Pilates And I'm not suggesting these things are related. The following two things I'm going to say are related, but they are interesting. Joe Pilates, when you see, when I saw some video of him, some old movies, actually, the guy breathed high into his chest. His abs Mm -hmm. were like super tight and hit one of the, one of the, the things in in the book that I, the first Pilates book I got was all, wait, don't hold it up. Oh yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Super tight abs. What was he like a million years old at that point? You also have to remember he had asthma as a kid. Well, exactly. So he had asthma too. So he wasn't a deep breather. It is interesting that he died of asphyxiation in a fire. Again, I'm not saying these are related. He he died after the fire. So he didn't die of asphyxiation, but he did. Oh, really? A lot of smoke. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, that's just kind of a, you know, one of those weird coincidental whatevers. It's like Kennedy had an assistant named Lincoln and Lincoln had an assistant named Kennedy. But the point is that, you know, a lot of Pilates people will say things like, like brace your core, you know, zip up your abdomen and now take a deep breath. Of course, you can't take a deep breath if you're not. No. So yeah, how do you, so, so talk, say, say something about that. Okay. So I try and encourage, one of the first things that I do with people is breathing three dimensionally. Mm. And I also like to point out that maybe when we breathe in Pilates, when we breathe, when we run, it's different than relaxation. That is totally true. Totally okay. true. So, but we are, our lungs live in our chest. They don't live in our belly, right? Correct. If you're a meat eater, you know that eating ribs is, you eat ribs because there's muscle there, right? So we have muscles. It's good eating. I don't really like ribs, but that's a side. There are muscles that help open our ribs and there are muscles that help close our ribs. There are muscles that expand our chest and our rib cage side to side, besides our diaphragm, front to back and top to bottom. So we need to expand our lungs and our chest in three dimensions. If you have a dog and you put your hands on their chest, it's pliant, right? It can move. Again, we sit too much and we're slumped forward. We lose the ability to move our spine in all directions and to expand our rib cage, right? And all of those things happen when we breathe. So I'll have people get on the roller longitudinally to work on spinal flexibility, thoracic flexibility, and then rib cage flexibility, and then activate that. Breathe thoroughly and bigly in your rib cage, front to back, side to side, top to bottom, 
And yes, when you inhale, your diaphragm will expand. Yeah, it goes down. And expand your rib cage by doming by by dropping down, and there will be your belly will it will expand. But you right. don't have to be pushing your belly anywhere. Like right. don't be pushing the belly out. Right? That's not natural. When you breathe in, your belly is going to, your core is going to relax. Like your pelvic floor has to relax a little bit. Your transverse abdominus has to relax a little bit. When you exhale and you exhale completely and you squeeze all the air out. So yes, your diaphragm domes back up. Your ribs come together front to back, side to side, even top to bottom of it. Your sternum will drop a little bit. Our body doesn't like big changes in pressure. doesn't like big changes in a lot of things, temperature, pressure acidity, right? So if I breathe in and there's pressure downward on my abdomen and on my groceries, right? I breathe in, there's pressure. I breathe out, no pressure. Our body doesn't like that. So pressure, no pressure. It's the core, transverse abdominus, multifidus, and pelvic floor that then cinch to keep the pressure more steady. And if you exhale completely and try to exhale fully, those muscles are going to work more. So I always tell people, if you're going to do something with back pain, if you're going to do something that's difficult, like open a heavy door, you have to pick up your kid, use your exhale, and right. use your, activity, your core muscles to do that, right? So I'm not sure I answered your question. No, but, you, did. Uh, you, you did. It's, it's that there have been, again, it's like the Pilates people who don't, know, who don't really pay attention to feet. There are Pilates people who think that somehow the, and I, only, I say this because I've met them, <laughs> that they think that somehow the goal is to keep your core tight as you're trying to breathe in where you can only be breathing into your chest and you're not letting the diaphragm really move. You're not letting yet. Yeah, so. I so, no, no, I agree. Also, you know, there are also people that say spine stabilization from a PT standpoint is you find neutral and you keep it there. Well, that's, right. that's kind of silly. We should have a range of motion that we move and stabilization and that core activation is dynamic. Yep. It's dynamic, right. So, uh, there are times when I need more core and there are times when I need less and the body should respond in kind to that. I, I think, I think we nailed that one. I can't think of anything else, anything we left out, anything fun that we wanted that you need to no, chime in about talk for days, but you I know, know we, we could, but there's only so many days in a day. That's all I got. Kathleen, this has been a total, total treat. I mean, I hope that people really do check out just the whole concept of everything we talked about of just, you know, finding someone who understands these things if they can't find them. But if they do want to find you for any reason, I don't know if you have anything that you're able to deliver to people online or in digitally in some way, but how do they find you and everything you're up to? I do have a website. It's about to be totally overhauled because it's due for that. I moved into a new office a year ago and uh, needed to update the website, but it's kmcdonoughpt.com. So that's K. M C D as in David O N as in Nancy O U G H P as in Paul T as in Tom dot com and there's some information on there. I uh, one of the things that COVID has taught me is that I've never had to advertise before, but or market myself. But I have a lot of clients that don't feel comfortable coming in yet, and I totally yeah. respect that. So I'm I'm trying to do things and for marketing more like writing blogs, and mm-hmm. so I do have a Facebook page that again is Kathleen McDonough. It's M A P T. M Edmonds and Mary A is an Apple, P is in Paul, T is in Tom. You can go to my Facebook page. You can look for regular blogs on there. I just posted one on working from home. That's first in a series of three. And gosh, there was another one. Oh, on postpartum. My next ones are going to be on feet because oh, I teach a workshop on feet and things that you can do 
and some self-mobilization techniques and playing with your feet. I call it self-love for your feet that you can do. So look either on my Facebook page or on my website. You can always email me and it's kmcdonaghpt at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer questions or help you find sources. And yeah. That'll do it. Well, and I'm looking forward to when people do feel comfortable to do work, be in public and, or be in a group together, especially for your workshop, because you kindly sent me the curriculum for your foot workshop, which is awesome. So yeah, I was really, really impressed with that. And I look forward to when you're, when everyone's comfortable enough for that to be a viable option for people to experience. Yeah, we can do it outside. So if, you know, if there's a group it's of true. people, I'm, I'm in Marin County, I'm just north of San Francisco. So if you contact me and say, let's do it, we can do good it outside. Yeah, good idea. We've, uh, I've been having a socially distant picnic brunch with friends for the last two months out in a park yeah. that no one pretty much goes to. It's been very, very pleasant. So that's a yeah. great idea. Well, Kathleen, this has been a total, total treat. Uh, I, you know, obviously, anything we can do to help, please let me know. But let me um, do the official sign. And again, for everyone else, track down what Kathleen's up to, tolerate the not updated website yet. You know, obviously there are, I'm trying to think of how I want to say this. There are the number of people who have the, both kind of the breadth and depth of knowledge and experience you have around this. There's not a lot. So it's always a treat to introduce people to someone who does. There are a number of people who, you know, who've, it's been really fun lately. There's just been more and more people who really do understand that it's not just the feet. It's not the feet are not just there for no reason that the body really does work as this holistic thing. And you might need to start with your hips to get to your feet or the other way around. So it's, I hope this is not overwhelming for people and it's just inspiring to try to find someone to work with and you don't need to wait till you're injured. You know, there's always a little something that could be done. These things are always compensating in strange ways could use a little bit of attention that would be helpful in ways that one might not imagine. It's funny. I mean, I was a gymnast up until, well, I stopped when I was 32, but I stopped competing when I was 18, 19 and uh, actually 18. And I've spent 40 years trying to get the gymnast out of my body. And it's something that I'm still working on because it was something during my most developmental years is when I was focusing on things that were good for doing that, that were not good for many, many other ways of life. So there's always more that can be done without, yeah. well, simultaneously without having to make yourself an improvement project. Yeah, you know that's such a great point about not waiting till you're injured to see a PT yeah. because many states you can self-refer. Yeah, and what is also performance based, you know. Yeah. So I see people that want to be a better tennis player or a better runner, just curious about how they could make some improvements. And you don't need a physician's prescription in California to start with a physical therapist. So you can Colorado see us. Performance as well. Yeah, the irony with Colorado is you don't need a prescription, but they will do everything in their power to tell you the insurance companies to tell you that you're you're fine. I had shoulder surgery. My doctor said this is going to be two years of PT. After three sessions, my insurance company said, "Yeah, you're okay." (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, there's that. Yeah, Yeah. there is that. Anyway, thank you again. So for everybody else, thank you for uh, joining us on the podcast. If you don't know, you can find more episodes and more ways of interacting with us and all the places that you can get your podcast and other content at jointhemovementmovement.com. That's www.jointhemovementmovement.com. Again, that's where you can also find out how to get in touch with us. If you have comments you want to leave, questions you want to ask, if you have a question for me, drop me an email, move at jointhemovementmovement.com. That could be for questions or someone you think should be on the show. My goal is to find someone who thinks I have my head completely up my butt and we can get into an interesting conversation about that. 
Anyway, as I said before, we are creating this movement about movement and we'd love for you to be part of it. So like and subscribe and share and give us a thumbs up and click the bell on YouTube if you're watching there, et cetera, et cetera. If you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. But most importantly, go out, have fun, live life, beat first. Take care. You've been listening to the Movement Movement Podcast with host Stephen Sashen. Remember to join the tribe and subscribe at jointhemovementmovement.com.